Welcome to DLA Piper's Tech Law podcast series with myself, Anthony Day, international fintech lead and partner at global business law firm DLA Piper, focusing on how we harness opportunity in the fintech sector. For today's podcast, I'm very lucky to be joined by two eminent industry executives in the fintech arena, and we're going to be exploring the key issues surrounding diversity and policy in the financial services sector. Whilst I have the benefit of advising on a range of business-critical fintech projects globally, here I extend a special welcome to Georgia Hanias, Head of Global Communications and Diversity Programs at Innovate Finance, and Samir Galati, Policy Advisor at Innovate Finance. For those that don't know, Innovate Finance is an independent membership association that represents the UK's global fintech community and which aims to accelerate the country's leading position in the global financial services sector by directly supporting the next era of technology-led financial services innovators. A fast-paced market and external factors such as Brexit, together with access to leading talent, can create challenges in relation to a diverse workforce. Georgia, what are the primary challenges and opportunities you are currently seeing in relation to diversity in the fintech sector? Thank you very much for having me. Um, Diversity has always been a challenge in the financial services sector. And what we are seeing is that the, the future of finance, which is meant to be financial technology, is reflecting the old world of finance. So if you look at our membership association, we have nearly 300 members now. Of those 300, we have less than 25 female CEOs. You'll also look at the socioeconomic, the ethnic breakdown of the founders of a lot of these organizations, and it's still a very white male-dominated sector. Now, this is very distressing for us because, obviously, we're trying to create a financial services sector that reflects the diversity of the customers we're meant to serve. And we don't want to alienate anyone within our membership association by, you know, singling out, uh, you know, white men who clearly have incredible experience having worked in the financial services sector for many years. And obviously, they're well poised to set up and establish successful um, financial services fintech companies because they have that insider knowledge and that expertise. But what we want to see is a leveling of the playing field, trying to see people from different backgrounds, trying to penetrate this agile um, environment that we are creating. And that is a challenge even today. Another major challenge, which Brexit is not going to help, is that there's a dearth of tech talent out there to begin with. And as we said before, those who are well-educated and are qualified to enter these types of professions come from a certain socioeconomic, ethnic background. But we're seeing that there are a few really interesting programs at the grassroots level at schools and universities, which are basically mentoring kids at a very young age and putting that bug in their ear that, yes, you know, there is a prospect, there is an opportunity for you to make your mark in the financial services sector. And we're playing our part uh, with that as well. Next year, we're hoping to launch a diversity in tech week. And uh, we are going to have Girl Guides coming to the city of London. And we're going to do a fintech crawl around the city. And we're going to introduce the girls to some very prominent uh, female entrepreneurs that are working in the 
uh, fintech innovation space. And again, I hope that it'll inspire them to consider a career in, in financial services, which I think is great. We also have some fantastic community partners that are doing amazing work. Uh, one of them is the Makers Academy, which is the premier coding school in Europe. They're just down in Shoreditch. I encourage you all to meet them. They're able to train up uh, people from very different backgrounds to become expert coders within three or four months. And they place them in major institutions and fintech companies. And they're about to launch a very exciting program where they're going to sponsor five people to actually go through the program. And they're one of the few partners that I've seen that are actually doing something to close that gap in skills, as well as the, di the diversity gap. So there are some, some shoots of, of promise out there, but uh, there's still a lot more that, that we can do. I think people are conscious now of the need to diversify. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs are very open to it. I don't think you're going to get more open people than those working in the fintech sector. And I think my colleague Samir will agree with me. Um, the biggest challenge for them now is sourcing that talent. It's like, well, you know, there's a dearth of developers out there and we have a handful of them. If we've got the candidates, we don't care what their background is. We just want their talent. Um, so we've got to address the fact that we don't have enough homegrown talent. And if we're going to be importing great talent, we've got to take that into account, especially uh, with Brexit. But they're open to the idea. Um, now we've just got to make sure that we've got enough of a diverse talent pool for, for the startups to actually um, select the right candidates. Uh, over to you, Samir. Mm. Um, from a policy perspective, um, do you think we're doing enough at the moment to promote diversity within the fintech sector? Uh, could we be doing more? Um, is it the role of government? Is it the role of regulators? Or, or is it the role of industry? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a it's a it's a really important question to uh, to ask, but also to understand what we mean by diversity. So I think, for me at least, diversity is about sort of transforming organisations in their ability to, you know, provide equal opportunities based on age, disability, race, gender, uh, and sexual orientation. So there's a, a number of different facets which make up what a diverse workforce is. So taking the public policy perspective for a minute, if we look at the skill set of our, say, domestic workforce, one of the real challenges we face are a lack of STEM uh, skilled workers in the UK. So uh, the annual shortfall of that is, uh, by some estimates, about 40,000 people. Uh, and moreover, only 14.4% of all those people working in STEM occupations are women. So there's a clear public policy mandate to act whereby targeting improvements in, say, gender diversity might start to plug some of those systemic sh uh, shortages in high-skilled occupations. And I think if we look specifically at the financial se uh, services sector as well, um, according to the uh, Office of National Statistics, the gender pay gap in FS is around 40%, uh, which is the highest of any subsector in the UK. Uh, and if you compare that for the, for the economy as a whole, it's about 19%. So as a sector, we can do a lot more. And I think uh, there are many opportunities to bridge that gap between male and female pay. Um, the other thing that I would say also is, of course, there are, there are moral, uh, there are ethical considerations as to having a diverse 
workforce, but it also comes down to, you know, employment, productivity, the growth of the economy. So, you know, the Government Equalities Office, for example, said that if you uh, employ women to the same participation level as men, you could add £600 billion to the UK economy. So again, there's not just the, the idea that this is a social uh, aspect, which is changing the, the nature of financial services. There's a clear economic rationale to, have a, to having a more diverse workforce as well. Um, and I'd also just say there, there are a couple of initiatives out there, and I'll let Georgia speak about what we're doing with women in fintech. Um, but another area is, is HM Treasury's Women in Finance Charter as well. Um, so that was launched in, in July 2016. And a year on, so July 2017, there are 141 firms now uh, across the FS sector who've signed up committing to supporting the progression of women, especially into senior positions to build a fairer financial services sector. So I think initiatives like those are really tangibly helping improve diversity, mm -hmm. um, not just in, in, in and amongst fintechs, but in the financial services sector as a whole. Um, the, the last thing I'd say on this is, is also, this isn't just a UK specific challenge. Um, this is uh, an issue which faces financial services sectors across the world. So if we look at, for example, Silicon Valley, which is often sort of held up as this uh, sort of tech utopia, if we look at behemoths such as Google, its own reporting shows that in its own workforce, 69% of their, their employees are male and just 2% are, are African-American and only 20% of the technical jobs held are by women. So I think the underlying reasons for these disparities are multifaceted and complex. So whether it's the underlying demographics, so Silicon Valley has a, a proportion, I think, of 6.5% of their population is black, to the lower proportion of minorities working in computer program uh, degrees, and also the preference for some of these institutions to, um, to recruit from elite academic institutions, which typically have a below average ethnic minority makeup. So I think all of that leads to a, a much less diverse group of candidates and also provides several entry points for public policy to make a difference. The changing regulatory landscape affects both incumbents and challengers alike. From a policy perspective um, for you, Samir, what are the primary challenges and opportunities key to accelerating the expansion of the fintech industry at the moment? To your question, I think there's a couple of areas where there are um, uh, you know, interesting uh, opportunities, but also challenges. So on the, on the regulatory side to begin with, I think the second directive on payment services, or, or PSD2, which it's commonly known as, um, potentially has a, a game-changing effect within financial services and also fintech. Um, what PSD2 does, uh, in short, is mandate that banks open up their systems and data to third-party service providers, giving access to customers' financial and transactional data. And it's really thought to represent potentially a fundamental change in the nature of retail banking. But there are a number of issues that I think are actively at the moment being looked at uh, and, and being grappled with by the uh, body taking this forward in the UK, which is called the Open Banking Implementation Entity. So some of those are where liability would lie in a system where, where data is shared through APIs and you have a number of different actors accessing the data of, uh, of consumers through banking institutions. 
There's also the idea of how do you start to square PSD2 with other incoming European legislation, for example, GDPR or the General Data Protection Regime, uh, which itself imposes heavy penalties on data breaches, which can be up to 20 million euros or 4% of your global annual turnover. So in fact, under GDPR, data processes themselves will be held under a statutory obligation to protect data, which previously only applied to data controllers. So we're seeing on the one hand, an opening up of data uh, and the use of data, which I think could lead to some really interesting use cases for, uh, for financial um, uh, technology firms. But at the same time, you've got more stringent regulation coming in from a European perspective. Also, I'd just quickly add that philosophically, there also might be a divide on the nature of data collection. So GDPR has something within it called the principle of data minimization. And that essentially means that, uh, that subject to certain limitations, an organization should only uh, process the personal data that it needs for the purposes of that collection. Um, now, whilst in principle that prevents something called mission creep, often startups might not necessarily know what is necessary by way of collection. And actually, the really interesting stuff with data happens uh, is when you start to manipulate large data sets and you create really interesting use cases which haven't already been preordained. So I think there's a bit of a philosophical divide between data collection, but also what open banking could herald. And I think, again, that shows some of the challenges in place. Um, and secondly, I'd, I'd very quickly turn to policy and perhaps one of the key issues facing fintech today, and, and Georgia mentioned this as well with respect to Brexit, is the current political environment around talent, skills, and migration. So if we look at our own membership base, 30% of Innovate Finance's non-institutional members were born abroad. Uh, and again, so the reliance on, on foreign talent um, is incredibly high, uh, not just within fintech, but tech more broadly. So, for example, across the UK, 34% of startup workers come from abroad, of which 20.7% are from EU countries. So I think having progressive policies for migration skills um, are incredibly important. And I think they range from simply the idea of knowing, well, where do, where do the skills gaps lie? There hasn't been a national audit conducted to review what the needs of the tech sector are. I think that'd be a good starting point to have evidence-based public policy. Um, but then also moving forward, there, there have been um, far more stringent um, um, sort of uh, applications to tier two visas. So you've got a new £1,000 immigration skills charge, which notionally might not sound like a lot of money, but to startups, this is an incredibly high burden and barrier to recruiting the talent that you need to drive your company. So one potential policy suggestion might be to ring fence the amount of money that raises, which is said to be about 250 million pounds, towards investing in a domestic skills agenda. Um, likewise, the government could review the post-study work visa regime, uh, but also uh, look at some of the qualifying businesses on the tier two visa shortage occupation list. So currently changes to that list only apply to firms, so SMEs employing between 20 and 250 employees. So again, that bypasses a lot of the tech sector SMEs with fewer than 20 employees. Um, and just to end, I'd also say um, there are smaller things that we can do which can make a really big change. For example, how do you define high-skilled? At the moment, the UK is, is, is one of the only major advanced economies that simply focuses on a one-dimensional view of this as being if you have a degree or if it's higher educational attainment. And I think other countries around the world, whether it's Australia to the US and abroad, try to group occupations at different skill levels, taking into account the tasks 
needed for a job. So I think these are all areas of public policy intervention, both on the challenges and opportunities on PSD2 and open banking, but also with respects to talent, skills and migration, which are going to hopefully spur fintech for the next few years. And Georgia, probably a question that will be dear to your heart um, with an eye towards Brexit. How do you see Brexit affecting diversity, talent, movement of people? Um, Samir was explaining how the current environment, particularly in the UK, is sort of fostering innovation and growth. And there's been some great strides in terms of how we're, we're managing the environment and allowing creativity. Do you see Brexit upsetting the apple cart and impacting the way that fintechs can operate and access to talent? Yes, I think it will be very impactful. If you just look at the, the demographics, as Samir pointed out that we had a little over 30% of our membership base um, that comes from abroad. But if you look at that 30-some percent, there's still the same type of individual. It's predominantly male with a particular background. A lot of them went to the top universities in Europe that everyone has heard of. So we're still getting the same homogeneous entrepreneur coming to the UK. And they have the skills that were necessary to, to, to flourish here in, in our sector. And I think it's going to be even more difficult uh, to, well, attract that type of entrepreneur to this country if we make it very difficult um, with visa requirements. Um, and it'll be even more difficult to attract people from diverse backgrounds. So I think it's going to be very, very uh, difficult for us. And I also want to talk a bit about what Samir said about the, the skills. How do we define skills? And certainly it would be advantageous for everyone to have a university background. But what I've been seeing and noticing is that a lot of the startups need coders and developers. And one could argue that that is a vocational uh, training uh, that, that can be done in, in a few months' time. And the Makers Academy is doing just that. You know, they've got a crash course, three, four months and you're able, upon graduation, to become a coder and a developer and to, to seek employment uh, at, at um, you know, very prestigious organizations. So that in itself is a very niche skill set that can be addressed. And um, you don't need a university degree. It's much cheaper than going to university and completing a four-year course. I did a, just to give you an idea in terms of pricing nowadays, I, I was at Oxford University uh, about a year and a half ago, and I made a, a short presentation about fintech. And someone at Oxford said, you know, have you ever thought about doing the executive MBA program? And I said, well, no, I already have a master's. But I was just quite curious to see what that program entailed. But I just couldn't believe the cost of the program, which, you know, in, in dollar terms is well, well over 100000 so you think, well, what's a better investment? If you know you want to get a, a good job and you want to penetrate the fintech sector, maybe doing a vocational program in coding and developing might get you that entry point, get you that insider knowledge that you need to potentially one day become a fintech entrepreneur yourself. But we are very worried about Brexit from the, uh, on the talent side of things and you know, diversity as well. But all we can do is hope that we can, at a minimum, start developing our homegrown indigenous talent here. And as I said before, people are very open to the idea of embracing diversity within the organization. It's now just training people up from those different backgrounds 
to get the skills that they need and to consider a career in financial services? No, I think it's certainly challenging times ahead, but um, if we can pursue the right initiatives and use the right kind of magic ingredients to help coordinate the sector, it's certainly going to enable it to continue flourishing. One final question for you, Samir. Um, we've been hearing about how the UK is um, at the moment a very good market for fostering innovation and the regulators have been um, a kind of key catalyst or, or ingredient to making that happen. Um, how, do you, how does the UK compare to, to other markets, other regulators that you're seeing? Um, are there others that can, we can learn from that, um, from your perspective, uh, are doing a good job to promote innovation? If I was to pick one country for me that I think has really shown uh, potentially what the future could look like, it's, it's India. Um, and you might not necessarily think, given the range of, uh, of social issues, of economic issues, of investment, um, that fintech would be so high on the agenda for India. But they've really taken steps towards developing their digital financial infrastructure through a scheme called Aadhaar. Um, and that's their national digital identity scheme. And actually, it's the fastest platform of any kind anywhere in the world to have crossed one billion registrations. And that includes... Uh, WhatsApp, uh, that includes Facebook, um, any of the, the sort of standard Western ideals wow. of digital platforms um, has been surpassed by other, and they did that in five and a half years. So that gives you a sense of just the scale of opportunity that fintech provides in India. It's not just on the periphery, but it's actually the mainstream. Uh, and also just again to give you a scale of the program, because I find it totally fascinating, is that at its peak, Every quarter, Aadhaar was registering, so this digital identity scheme was registering the equivalent of New Zealand's population. Uh, and it had to be incredibly accurate. So even at 99.5% accuracy, it mean getting digital identity wrong for the entire population of Singapore. So it gives you just an idea of the incredible scope that fintech could achieve um, given the demographies that you see in emerging markets. And so building on that, the Indian government has since developed something called the India Stack, which is comprised of a set of public APIs on top of Adar. So it's built on it. It's a layered innovation system. So they've got a digital locker, which provides you access to e-documents. They've got an EKYC uh, system in place and a unified payments interface, which is enabling over 1 billion mobile phones to act as financial access points for P2P transfers. So again, overall, this approach to digital financial infrastructure has led to you know, more than 200 million bank accounts being opened in just a single year and 300 million new debit cards and credit cards issued in the last four years. So this is the future for, for fintech and regtech. And this is why um, I think we need to continue to push progressive policy we need to continue to champion fintech because there are emerging economies out there that are really snapping at our heels.